Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community, and communities create social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So my next guest is a activist. He's a social justice guy. He uh, he sa- he tells me he's got the looks for for radio. So I'll let you guys decide that once you've listened to the interview. How how odd and absurd is that? We talk about human rights and 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 policy inconsistencies. We talk about uh, the politicization of uh, of a young girl's human rights. And we call we talk about this thing called statelessness. And uh, Vaden is a is a guy who who has a story. He has many stories to tell. Actually, he's an author. He's uh, he's a public speaker. He's uh, he's a motivator, and he wants to talk about things that matter. And we're also going to hear about a very personal story that that you're going to want to stay tuned for and find out more information about uh, online. Uh, you can re- uh, read more there in the bio. You can uh, listen into the interview, and uh, I know that um, you are going to be uh, engaged. We talk about humanizing the statistic and, 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 and what it means to be politically correct. Haiti comes up, oppression comes up, global poverty, uh, the majority world. Stay tuned for a little bit more uh, coming right up on Face to Face with Vaden Earl. And don't forget facetofacelive.ca for more of my own podcasting, davidpecklive.com for a bit of info about my writing and public speaking. And uh, rabble.ca as well uh, for more information about some other podcasting and blogging and so on and uh, a website uh, about everything that matters. And you can also support the work that I'm doing through Face to Face on patreon.com if you feel so inclined. Coming right up, Vaden Earl uh, here, here today on Face to Face. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by a very special guest today. Jess, yes, believe it or not, another very special guest. That's the only kind we have here on Face to Face. Vaden Earl is with us today all the way from the DR. He is live and in person. Vaden, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Dave. So we've been trying to make this happen for what, about 17 years, I think, this podcast? <laughs> Appro- 
approximately. Yeah. yeah, 16 and a half, I think, is the <laughs> yeah. exact number. We predated podcasting, actually, this interview, or at least the desire for it. Yeah, you got it. So, Vaden, you've got a really interesting biography. Um, author, activist, social justice, social change guy. You're connected to volunteerism. You've been, you've traveled the world, uh, youth leadership. Uh, the list is 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 pretty endless. If somebody cornered you and said, "Tell me, tell me a bit about Vaden Neural," what would you say? Boy, I I try and walk away, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I just. I think for my whole life, ever since uh, as young as I can remember, the theme, if I could sum it up into one thing, is I always like to fight for the underdog. So that puts me in a spot where I do I do push for social justice, and I have become quite a human rights activist. And my travels around the world uh, mostly have been to the developing world, the, the majority world, where things aren't the way we're used to seeing them in Canada or the U.S., what do you mean? Um, I mean, it's a it's it's an interesting way of, of looking at it. Majority world. I've heard I've heard global south, uh, two thirds world. Can can you unpack that a little bit for the listeners? Yeah, it's you know in the world of being politically correct, we never know what to call anything anymore without offending somebody. But I like to use the term majority world because it invokes the thought that we are the exception with our affluence that we have in Canada and the U.S. We're not the rule. We're the exception. And the majority of the world does live on less than $2 a day. So when I say I've traveled to the majority world, those are the places that are trying to get a step up and get on that ladder to recovery, get out of poverty. And I don't like using third world as much just because it, it, it conjures up a different kind of mentality. I like, I like to put the onus back on us to say we're not the rule. We are the exception. So in 2007, you published, I think it was 2007, you published a, a, a beautiful book, uh, a tragically beautiful book. Is that a, is that a fair phrase? It's, it's, I, I like that phrase, and, and thank you for the compliment. Yeah. <laughs> One, a, a face behind the numbers. Tell us a bit about it. It was, it was based on uh, what, what no longer, I think, exists. The, the Millennium Development Goals been replaced by the Sustainable Development Goals. Tell, tell us a little bit about the genesis of the book, uh, where it took you. I mean, just beautiful, beautiful photography, so well written, and and such a affirming challenge to to us all. Yeah, the book it was it was an outflow of what was going on in my head for about a couple of years before that. I had traveled to some some pretty dark corners of Thailand and Cambodia, as I know you have as well. And I remember even in some places throughout the Caribbean that you'd expect to see on a postcard, not on a, you know, a UN chart. <clears throat> and I saw some things that, that blew my mind. And I came home and I did some research and all I started to see was all these giant numbers. Mm. 30,000 people a day die in Africa. And it's not even a tragedy. It's just a number at that point. Right. I mean, it's like 30,000 people died this, today in Africa. Somebody passed the beer nuts sort of thing, right? It just, it, it just, you fold that into a conversation as if it meant nothing. And it bothered me so much because I met a handful of those 30,000 people in Africa or in Thailand or in Cambodia, wherever I've been. So I started to think there's got to be a way of humanizing some of these statistics because when they're just numbers, it's very difficult for me to get passionate about them. So I, I started collecting stories when I traveled and as well as collecting photography. And I realized that 
30,000 people dying a day is, is a, a number. But if I hear the name of that one child that struggled because he only got to eat once a week and how he fought through it and ended up passing away, if I know his name and I see a picture of his face, that now is a tragedy. That can break my heart, whereas a number just wasn't doing it. So uh, your your role was to sort of connect, and I don't really like the, the language, but, you know, uh, over here and over there, <laughs> bridging the gap finding a, finding a way yes. to, to speak about these issues in a way that, that actually mattered. This wasn't about quantification anymore. This wasn't about numbers and math and stats. This is, you, you got to go deeper. Yeah, it was about humanizing it, really. I mean, if I could boil it down to a phrase, that book, the entire purpose of that book was about humanizing the global tragedy that is extreme poverty. Where do you where do you sit today? So so ten years old. I'm I'm kind of blown away that the the book's been out for ten years. Um, I think you've mentioned before um, possibly writing a follow up. Um, maybe you're working on a project like that currently. But but you know you know if you read the stats, numbers apparently are going down of of, of children that die every day. And and you know it would appear on a certain level things are getting better. What what's what's your sense? Well. I don't, I don't know if I'm ready to jump on to the getting better bandwagon, but I'm, I'm ready to say it's changing. I don't know if it's all for the better. You know, less, less people are dying of, of hunger and more are dying of malaria, for example. So it's, there's still a, there's still a lot to be done. And yeah, we have made grounds. Uh, you, you talk with folks like, uh, Jeffrey Sachs, for example. More, more countries to use his terminology are getting on the ladder to get out of poverty. Um, but certainly the, the task is daunting. I live, as you said earlier, here in Dominican Republic, and we're snuggled up on the same island with Haiti, and it only takes a two-hour drive to get into a place where, you know, you can't, you can't even fathom the abject poverty that we see in Port-au-Prince, and we're talking about seven years after that giant earthquake, and there's still three-quarters of a million people living in tents from that, mm-hmm. so... I know there's a lot of uh, a lot of people that are very positive about where we're going, but we're we're scratching the surface, certainly. How do you, Vaden? You know, it's it's something that continues to be a challenge. You know, uh, here in Canada, one of our well, there was just an announcement recently about about you know sort of the feminization of, of foreign aid and where that's going to take us. It's about gender equality and decreasing that gap and. And and yet our Canadian government didn't really at this point, and I'm I'm hopeful, but at this point didn't really put a whole lot more money towards, uh, you know, our overseas development assistance and so on. And it's got to be about more than money, it seems to me. It's about justice and it's about human rights and it's about all of these things. How do you think, uh, you know, how do how do you get people to care about this in a way that that isn't guilt that isn't guilt ridden, that 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 appeals, I don't know, to people's overarching sense of humanity. I mean, most of us lead incredibly busy lives. We have our families. We've got our own issues and work and so on and our creative projects. How the heck do you, do you, do you, do you get under that, that, um, that surface? Well, it's, it's a tough conversation to have, and it's, it's actually a very sensitive one when you speak to folks within North America or we'll call it the West, the global West, if we can call it that. Um, because the minute you start talking about changing the way things are done or maybe improving the, the lives of those in the majority world, you, you start to talk about, well, maybe that's going to get me out of my comfort zone. Like you said, we're all busy. We all have 
to-do lists and agendas and day planners and smartphones and all this stuff. So we have things we got to get to. And when someone says, well, hey, hey, you want me to donate my money or my time or my emotional energy into something? Well, we don't have a lot of that left over at the end of the day. So it becomes a conversation that not everyone's super comfortable with just because it does infringe on our way of life. My my trouble with that is is very simple. And this, this gets into a place not a lot of people want to go with me, but I don't believe that our way of life as it exists could have existed or can exist without the oppression of some of these countries that we're talking about. Hmm. So on, with that comes a responsibility. We have all the affluence you can imagine. I believe with that comes a responsibility to do something for our fellow man. And it might be the soup kitchen downtown in a metropolis in North America, but it, it also has to be in a place that, that they've never had an opportunity to get out of that poverty trap. So, I mean, when you look at it that way, and I've never really thought of it, I don't think I've thought of it quite this way before, but it's almost like this is a kind gesture back to, back to the folks that we exploited, back to the places that we took advantage of in order to get we are where we are today. I mean, you and I, of course, directly had nothing to do with it. But when you look back, you go back into our bloodlines and our histories and so on, we're probably not that far removed some from some pretty, um, yeah, some pretty horrific stuff. Yeah, and, and it's... I, we, they're, everyone's having the same conversation about how for how long do we pay for what our ancestors right. did, right. and that that conversation happens with Aboriginal issues. It happens with you know the Black Lives Matter movement and all the different things that are current. But there, there's a there's a, a difference that I'd like to draw. And I, again, certainly not to get into any of those conversations. But right now, the most of the conversations we have about that are about past atrocities right. that have stopped and the people talking have not been involved either as perpetrators or victims for the most part, not always, but for the most part, we're talking about things that are done. When it comes to global poverty, this isn't over. Today, 30,000 more people or close to that will die. And, and I think that's the difference is that we're living currently in a level of affluence that still probably would not exist if it were not for the current level of uh, decimation, if you will, of the economics of the third world or the majority world, like I said. So is, uh, I mean, it's, you're, you're Canadian, right? I am Canadian. Yes. Yeah. So yes, I mean, you wouldn't think it. I haven't been living in Canada for a long time, but my passport says Canada. So pretty interesting with the 150th, uh, you know, uh, birthday party recently, 150th anniversary, whatever you want to call it. We've got, you know, uh, Canada spending a whole lot of money on celebrations, on, you know, honoring who we are. We've got Bono in the Edge coming to Capitol, uh, Parliament Hill. Uh, woo, that was an interesting slip. To Parliament Hill to, you know, to sing one and to talk about opportunity and to talk about, you know, how Canada uh, 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 sets trends and we don't follow them. All wonderful stuff. And yet, a pretty dark history uh, on some in some regards and in many, many regards. And, and so many people, uh, saying, hang on a minute here, you're going to spend all this money celebrating something that really is leaving out a big part of the story. Yeah. And I, I can, I understand there's the, there's something to be said for let's, let's have a jumping off point and have a positive outlook from this point forward. I get it. But to ignore history is a bit silly. And the other thing, if you're going to, and this, I mean, 
this might be my own little beef, but if you're going to ignore the past in the celebrations, at least spend the exorbitant amounts of money on something other than rubber ducks and big red bouncy balls and stuff like that. Like that to me, it was a double whammy. It was a slap in the face to pretend our history is so great. Uh, but it's a bigger slap when, when the celebrations are just on, on silly things that just mean nothing to anybody, including Canadians. I mean, I don't know of anybody that was like, woohoo, a rubber bouncy ball in Calgary. I don't, I don't know that person. I don't, I don't know about the rubber bouncy balls in Calgary. What, what did I miss there, Vin? There was a giant red rubber bouncy ball in Calgary and I can't remember how much it cost, but it was, it, it would have put every homeless person in a shelter. That's for sure. <laughs> Safely. Right. right. Yeah, it's it, it it it's it's a difficult conversation, and I, uh, as you know, I teach at Humber College, and uh, just a couple of weeks ago this year, we we had Kairos come in. We were blessed to have them come, and we had a uh, Bob Phillips, uh, uh, First Nations elder, come and and run a blanket ceremony for us. And we've done this the last couple of years, and then we followed it up with a with a lunch made by a local Syrian woman who's a newcomer to Canada. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that in some respects, but. But you know, here we had sixty students doing this blanket ceremony. You got it. You got to do one if you ever get an opportunity. But talk about taking you back. Talk about rooting you in a history that says, yeah, you know what? We got to move forward. Absolutely got to step. But we got to look back to sort of start to to break down. Uh, you know, some of those 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 connecting dots. The, the the what does reconciliation actually mean, and and how are we going to move forward? And and uh, whether you like Trudeau or not, and that's not a comment to you or to anyone else really, but just you know, it, it, it seems like it seems like you know, having emerged after forty minute conversation out of the TP on Parliament Hill, that he's open to conversation. Where it's going to head is is another story. Yeah, I. Let's hope so. I mean, who knows? I, I just see so much political posturing going on these days that I, I believe things when, when the rubber hits the road. That's for sure. When it's in, in theory mode, I'm skeptical. I got to see something practical happen. But hopefully you're correct in that. Yeah, the large rubber ball was uh, meeting, uh, hitting the road in Calgary, apparently. Yeah, yeah, the big red rubber ball. And then there were, I, I didn't get to see the rubber ducky. I'm not sure if you were honored enough to get a selfie with it or not but i did not <laughs> i did not i mean i'm i'm very tempted here but it'll take me away from our conversation to do a quick bit of research on the on the big red rubber ball that's uh that's was, pretty funny so here's a quote uh quote where are you from what is your nationality these are pretty common questions imagine not being able to give a straight answer imagine a life where no country will claim you as its own this is a situation called statelessness, close quote. Uh, do you know who that is? I'm not sure, but it sounds like an uber-intelligent, very good-looking <laughs> human being. So that's, chap that's chapter seven, man. That's page 145 of your book, One Face Behind the Numbers. Tell yeah, I recognize it. <laughs> I bet you do. I I I want to talk about what's going on in your life. You've, you've, got, a, you've got a personal story to share. And, 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 uh, I would, I would say more than a personal beef, but, but tell, talk, talk, talk to me a little bit about, about statelessness and, and let's connect it to what's going on in your, your, your family's life. Well, as I said earlier, when I did, I started writing that book, it was all about humanizing the statistics. And one that was glaring at me was this thing called statelessness. Cause it's not a term that, that a lot of people know. No. And the reality is a disproportionately no, low number of children around the world, when they're born, don't get a birth certificate. And people 
in our in our world, we, it's a given. It's just a given. It's just sure. what happens, and sure. we don't even we don't consider that a potential global pandemic because it just happens for us. It's automatic, and if it doesn't happen, someone's going to get fined or go to jail because it's just it's an inalienable right that has to be granted to everyone that's born. But uh, I, I don't know the exact current numbers, but I believe we're getting close to 12 million people right now that we know of that are stateless in the world. And the problem with a issue like statelessness is we don't know. So we could say 12, it could be 200 million. We don't know by virtue of the fact that they're stateless. <laughs> so it's hard to count those that we don't recognize as humans, if you know what I mean. Yeah. How do, so, so root that a little bit more in, in some common experience, because I know you've got plenty of it. Um, what does that mean to me? I don't have a birth certificate. I'm living in a country. I mean, pers- obviously, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, I get it. But are we talking about things like access to healthcare as, you know, as, as sort of fundamental as that? Or is this, is this even bigger? Well, it, it starts immediately because you can't, in most countries, you can't even get access to education without some sort of a passport or birth certificate or whatever country, you know, whatever official document that country issues. So you start with education. So now you've got children that can't even get a primary education. So now they go down a path. If that's juncture number one is education, you know, go left to education, go right to no education. They go right. So they go right. Now they're going down a road where what are they doing during the day when all the other kids are in school? So there's other options. There's crime. There's child labor. There's child soldiers. There's all those things. They got to choose. Maybe they're going to stay home and help raise the siblings with their parents. Maybe they get lucky, but they're going down that road. And then when it comes time for a kid to actually work and get a legitimate job, they got another problem. Most forthright and legitimate employers require a piece of paper, some sort of piece of paper for that child or that kid or teenager, whatever they are, to hold down a job. So now we've got a section of the population that's uneducated and unemployable. And that's one thing. So if you think about if if today a million children are born stateless, that's one thing. And, and okay, we get our heads around that. But now when that million children become 18 years old and no education and cannot get a job, now they've got limited options. That puts them in a, in a, um, a poverty trap. That's very difficult, Mm. difficult to get out of. Because they got it now, they're going to start having kids who are also going to be stateless, and they, they need to provide for their children. They need to provide for their families. So, what options do they have? And it's one thing to talk about how severe that is when they're born, but when you roll the clock up twenty five or thirty years later, that's when we get the real epidemic. Well, isn't it remarkable too how something you know? Obviously, when you say it, you know, statelessness sounds very. Um, ominous and dark and and clearly it is but i guess what i mean is this one uh, issue how interconnected it is to pretty much everything else uh, and something so in a in a way simple i mean what do you mean i don't have a birth certificate is my question i remember uh going to get a a, a uk passport my father's from from luton england and so i get kind of grandfathered in i i have a i have uh, you know i carry two passports and we went to start I, I had to prove who i said i was and i had to get my parents uh, marriage certificate well we had a certificate from from the church 
uh, or uh, some Anglican church they got married at in Toronto, but we didn't have the marriage certificate from the government and we couldn't find it, Vaden. And it wasn't just that we couldn't find it in a safety deposit box. It, there was a period of time where the government was saying, yeah, we don't have a record of that. So my mom and dad, or especially my mom, she's like, well, we aren't married. What's, I mean, it, it kind of freaked her out a little bit. And so right. something so simple, right? Like that, you, you, you see the implications of it. And then you start to say, okay, now, now I'm starting to see why, why this is a little more complicated than, in a, you know, making something as simple as a black or white or an either or distinction. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it the, the ripple effects of that one little thing are just massive. Yeah, it's pretty profound. So tell me what, um, uh, and, 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 and I, I want to know about the petition that you're asking people to sign. I, I, I've, I've, I've heard a little bit, a bit about you on online lately, Vaden. Um, you are, you, you are becoming a bit more of an activist and, and you've got really good reasons for that. So, so tell us, tell us about what's going on about, um, and we're going to, we're going to kind of wrap up our talk today with, with a couple of action items for our listeners. But anyway, go ahead, please, please bring us into the loop. What's going on? So- yeah, so back um, back in 2009, I had been doing a lot of humanitarian work uh, in a lot of different countries, but I focused quite a bit of my time between Haiti and Dominican Republic. So met a little girl and her mom at a garbage dump in just outside Puerto Plata in Dominican Republic. And it's pretty common down here that uh, wherever there's a garbage dump, there's a free continual supply of plastics that you can recycle, sell to the recycling depot and make, you know, a few bucks a day for sustenance. So a lot of Haitians that are displaced and, and have nothing else, they'll go to the garbage dump, they'll collect plastics and make a few bucks. And then there's also, because we're in a tourism area, we find there's a lot of waste of food that gets into the garbage dump system and, and they eat that when it shows up at the garbage dump. I know that sounds horrific and disgusting, but that's the world of a lot of people here. So that's where I met this little girl and her mom. And shortly after I met her, the mom passed away. So we were looking at, at a couple of options, but I said shortly after. It's probably a couple of years, actually. I knew them before the mom had died. And I had grown quite attached to this little girl. So made some phone calls to our local MP and ended up talking with, the, at that point, the Minister of Immigration. And we got some help or we thought we had help from the government to adopt her. So we went ahead. She had been, when the mom had died, the little girl had been given to the grandmother who couldn't afford to feed her. I mean, she was getting fed two, three times a week. And they sent her back to Haiti with another family member because no one could afford to put food in her mouth. And in Haiti, I don't know if you know much about Haitian culture, but there's a system there called the Restavec system. And Restavec is French for stay with. Mm. And it's modern day slavery. So I can't say wealthy families will purchase kids from poor families because it's more like less poor families will purchase kids from more poor families. And they'll buy these kids for 30 or 50 bucks. And then they have them as household servants and they clean up and they, you know, feed the dog or whatever it is. And these these situations are horrific and, and it's complete and utter modern day slavery, but it's culturally accepted there. So when this little girl was sent back to Haiti, we all knew that that was going to be in her future as someone in a family that couldn't afford to feed her. So we got the green light from our friends in Ottawa to go ahead and if we could find her in Haiti, bring her back. And if the grandmother would sign the guardianship documents and all that, then they would push through an adoption. So we did that. 
And it was looking really good. That was June 15th of 2009 that I had that conversation with my MP. And it was looking really good. And then six months later, the earthquake happened. Mm. So and when I see the earthquake happen, I know people that listen to this podcast are probably thinking, well, that that's not a big deal because he already got her out of Haiti. But all the paperwork was in Haiti. And if you walk into the office of Child and Family Services in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, you don't see 25 computers and cubicles and all that. You see one rusty desk and one dude sitting there with a Barbie notebook and a pencil. Right. That's that's record keeping. That's what that is. So, and they'll have a file folder with your name on, and everything's handwritten. Even the birth certificates are handwritten. So, when the earthquake happened, not only did we lose all records of our approved adoption, we also lost our caseworker. She was killed in the earthquake. Wow. So, so and the whole the part the whole department was buried. I mean, it was just buried. So we started from zero again. And anyways, to Vaden, what's your daughter's name? Widlene is my daughter. That's a mouthful. Widlene, W-I-D-L-E-N-E. And how and how old is she? Widlene will be twelve this month. Wow, amazing! So she was four at the time. She's been yep been with us now since then. But a lot of things have changed. Legislation has changed. Haiti stopped approving international adoptions. Canada changed the way they did things. Anyway, it was a lot of a lot of stuff. So we kind of thrown in the towel and said, "Well, I guess it's life in DR until she's eighteen and can come to Canada as an adult." We just assumed that was going to be the case, right? But much to our chagrin, about a year ago, Dominican Republic changed their legislation one more time, and what they did was the UN actually called it a. Uh, social cleansing they said that any haitians or i shouldn't say haitians i should say people of haitian descent that were living in dominican republic had to prove three generations of legally immigrated ancestors or else they would not be given a dominican Hmm. identity which is impossible obviously with the record keeping like i just told you nobody can prove that certainly most of them didn't immigrate legally anyways they came across as refugees so there's about 750,000 people that have never been to Haiti, but they're Haitian, but they've never been to Haiti. Right. They don't speak Creole. They were born in Dominican. Their parents were born in Dominican. They speak Spanish. They're effectively Dominican. Dominican Republic says, we don't want you. Any of your paperwork is null and void. You can't use it anymore. It's over. So now they're, they're forced, they're, they're starting to um, deport them. Well, Haiti's knee-jerk reaction to the Dominican law was to say, no. You were born in Dominica, you speak Spanish, you don't speak Creole, we don't want you, we're not going to patriot you as Haitian. So in one signing of a pen, that created 750,000 stateless people in this country. Wow. I mean, talk about talk about interconnected, talk about domino effect and how one simple decision, and yet, you know, maybe not so simple, uh, affects potentially millions and the implications go on for, for generations. Yeah, and here we are. Try, we're trying to get now. Now, the reason that, I, that this has gone to a whole new gear, and the reason you're seeing me on the internet and in the news and everything else, is because my daughter Woodline now has joined the population of the most vulnerable people group on Earth as a stateless female under the age of 18. And the chances of potential exploitation in this country are astounding. She's had problems already with police officers now that know. They can look at her. They can tell she's Haitian. They assume she has no paperwork to be here. 
So they're trying to exploit her. And she's like, we've had to deal with some pretty serious situations with law enforcement here. And one in one case, just to give you one example, I was sitting down with the chief of police after one of his staff members literally tried to get my 11-year-old daughter to go home with him. Wow. And I, I, I found out it happened, and we dealt with it as any father would. But I sat down with his boss, and he says, why don't you go down to City Hall and file a formal complaint? And then he smiled. And I said, you damn well know why I can't do that. Because she has no paperwork. And he said, I know. And that smirk on his face made me realize it's, it's really time to leave this country. We, we, it's not a safe place for her anymore. And and so you, you're, you're asking me, you're asking our listeners, you're asking Canadians, you're asking anybody to get on board and say – uh, to, to be supportive of you and the family to to, to basically get her. I was going to say get her back to Canada, but to get yeah, her. She's in, never been. She's never been. She's never been on the plane. Right to get her into Canada, and 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 you know, as you read through your site and and uh, bringwiggleinghomebytheway.com, there'll be a link to it on the site, and you'll be able to access that uh, there. Uh, but but Canada has failed us. Um, you're just. Dead end, Vaden. Um, you've been knocking on doors for quite a few years. Can you give us an overview there? Yeah, so uh, we've been knocking on doors for quite a few years. Like I said, we threw in a towel until a couple months ago. Things heated up with with her being approached, and we just knew it was time. So I, I sent one. I put one post on my Facebook, and I said, "Does anyone know your local MP?" And a few people got back to me, and I I know my local MP quite well. So we started putting out messages to MPs saying, "Listen, we need." Minister Hussein and Prime Minister Trudeau to get on board with this because obviously one of their big campaign things was a more open border and a open arms to refugees and for those that, that need a helping hand, Canada will be that. And we, we hear it in every single speech. So I just thought, this is good. We have an opportunity here right. to right. Uh, to utilize that campaign promise and not just a promise, but what I believe is a, a philosophy that they've adopted that we can bring people to Canada that need need that fresh start. So we've been pushing and I was pleasantly surprised with the amount of support we've gotten. There have been days in the last month where Ahmed Hussein, his office has gotten more than 10,000 emails in a day from our supporters. So it's gotten national TV, it's gotten newspapers, it's gotten all over the radio. But what we're having a problem with is she's not a refugee. She doesn't fit, even like the Syrian refugee, she doesn't right. fit. Right. So she has no paperwork. So they're saying, well, we'll grant you travel documents to come to Canada as soon as you show that you have a fully legalized adoption. But we can't have a legalized adoption without her having a passport in some country that will legalize the adoption. So we're stuck with a situation where the minister does have discretion to offer a temporary residence permit, which just allows her entry into Canada. Okay. And he has discretion to issue that. He's been given this file by thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And we're just waiting and hopefully we're putting some media pressure on him and with the petition and stuff to make that decision. But in in the event that they don't, our only option left is to somehow get her to the United States and then drive across the border into Canada like thousands of people have done since January. Walk across, I should say. Right. In Manitoba where there's no border crossing and just claim refugee status, which I can't tell you there's a, there's a, a mixture of saddening me and enraging me mm. the that me as a Canadian citizen that that bore the name of Canada 
and the good, the good, uh, the, the philosophy of Canada and taking it to so many countries in the form of a humanitarian aid worker that I'm going to have to now risk my entire family's life, get on a boat maybe, and, and, and then walk across the border as refugees in my own country. There's a problem with that for me. There's a fundamental issue with that. Yeah, I would, I would think so. I would think there's a problem with that with, with most of us uh, Canadians, it seems to me. I, uh, well, it's, it's really, it's, it's crazy to me, Vaden. It sounds like to me, you know, hey, no politician over here on this side, but it sounds like a pretty simple fix, or at least you'd like to think so. Um, but, but clearly, uh, fairly, fairly nuanced. What's fascinating to me is you've been an activist, you've been an advocate for others most of your life and 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 clearly people can see that in your writing and and the work that you've done and now it's it well it's profoundly personal it's it's taking it to a whole new level it is and and the problem is i mean yes i'm ticked i mean i'm ticked that my life has come to a complete halt just because i've got to do something as simple as keep my daughter safe where she shouldn't have need to need me to do that so that that ticks me off it ticks me off that it's bleeding us of, of our, all of our time, all of our money and everything just to, just to be, try and lobby the government to do something that seems like it's a given. Right. Now, but the bigger problem, I mean, there's a bigger problem here, which is almost unbelievable, is that how many people are represented by the exact same situation that maybe don't have the tenacity or don't have the network that I do to actually get through to the prime minister or the minister of immigration? How many people quit? Right. You know, over the last few years, they said, I can't do it. They said no, and they just throw in the towel. Well, I'm not going to do that, but the problem is it's, it's they're making me go down a road I don't want to go down, I guess is what I'm trying to right. say. Right, right. Well, you're clearly fighting back, and you're uh, getting another – you're getting a bigger message out there as well. Very personal, obviously, uh, very connected, which is kind of interesting that we kind of come full circle, right, face behind the numbers now right. you know what what's the line this time it's personal i can't think of what 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 film is that from but it's a it's a tagline the schwarzenegger film ever made <laughs> yeah yeah so so we got to wrap it up sadly uh vaden tell tell me what we can do i mean I, I i'm i'm looking at the website here i can sign a petition i can contact the media i can contact my member of parliament i can share the story hashtag by the way folks is enough is enough what 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 else are you asking people to do well, those, those things are really important, but right now, as we see it, the, the biggest strength is still having an MP advocate to the minister for us. And sadly, it's become a partisan thing, so a liberal MP is more effective than any other MP at this point. But if, if people that want to help are willing to send an email to their MP, and I've even put on that website, there's even some copy and paste emails to send to your MP. Right, I've made it right. very easy. Um, and local media is becoming our, our strongest suit here. So even a, people think, oh, I just have a little local newspaper that goes out to 25 houses. That's fine. I'm happy with that because anyone in the media getting this is just going to pass it around to their circles and it will climb up right. to the top and it will get there. So MP, local media, the petition is, is a 30-second step. Just sign your name on the petition. And talk about it. At this point, we've got the you know in the news we've got the controversy over this uh, cutter thing and the, the ten and a half million dollars going to that guy. The the guy out in New Brunswick who beat his wife with the hockey stick, or the lady that attacked the, the guy in the Canadian Tire. There's all kinds of controversial things that seem to boil back to the issue of immigration. This 
doesn't have to be one of them. This can be one of those feel-good success stories that say, hey, we opened our doors and we're happy we did because we should have. It was the right thing to do. So talking about it is going to be huge. I love, I love uh, as just as we wrap up here, I love the line on the website, change a life in four simple steps. If, if that isn't what your life has been about, Vaden, you know, preaching that, you know, it's, it's not as hard as you think that, you yeah. know, you can make a difference and, 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 and you can, by, by intervening in this simple way, uh, you can, you can, you can add your voice to the, uh, to the, to the, con- to the conversation, but more importantly, hopefully towards the solution in this case. Yeah, exactly. That would be great. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to see a solution coming. Vaden, thanks for your time today. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, Vaden Earl joining us from the Dominican Republic. And uh, you going for uh, you going surfing later today, Vaden? Is that uh, are you going to be uh, spending your time in another way? I'm going to spend my time on a outdoor couch with a big old cigar in my hand. That's what go. I'm going to do today. There you go. Well, thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Dave. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 